This is Bethesda Broadcast, the podcast of Bethesda Church in Huron, South Dakota. This week, we have another guest speaker. Dan Copeland is the Bible teacher at James Valley Christian School. Dan is also a member here at Bethesda Church. Dan's message is entitled, Throw Out That Old Tuxedo. The passage is Matthew 9, verses 14 to 17. Here's Dan Copeland. You know, uh, I was having an interesting conversation this morning with my own family about clothing, which I, I didn't have the conversation because of the sermon, but it got me to thinking uh, about this issue. We live in a culture that is very much obsessed with clothing, fashion. And so I'm kind of wondering, if you don't think we're obsessed with culture, let, let's ask this. How many of you, show your, raise your hands, how many of you did not think at all about what you were wearing this morning before you left the house. But your wife did, didn't she? She laid them clothes out for you, Don. I know she did. We think about it all the time, don't we? And what's interesting is on the one hand, we say, well, God doesn't care what you're wearing. But do you know, actually, Scripture says God does care about what you're wearing. As a matter of fact, Scripture says that you'll get into heaven based on what you're wearing. Don't throw any rocks. Don't throw any rocks yet, okay? Just go with me here. But I know some of you might be thinking, well, God's not that shallow, surely. We hope. But it is in Scripture, and we're going to talk about that this morning. We're talking about garments. And uh, you'll notice there's three Scripture references. Your bulletin says we're reading out of Matthew. But actually, the same parable we're looking at is found in all three of the uh, synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke. We're going to look at... Uh, I'd encourage you, actually, to have Luke open, and uh, we're going to read from the Mark passage. The three are very, very similar, only very minor differences, uh, but I'll be reading mostly out of Mark and referencing Luke once in a while. So I'd like to start just by reading the passage from Mark, Mark 2, verses 13 through 22. It says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days are coming when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from, tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. 
If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the skin is destroyed. And I'm sorry, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins. As we pray, I know Ted led us in prayer already, but I'd just like to, to start after our scripture reading with another word of prayer, because I need all the prayer I can get up here. Amen. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. Uh, God, as we read these words, I pray that they would just make a difference in our hearts, in our minds. God, would you be ever transforming us into your image, teaching us what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that this morning as we worship here together, that your spirit would have the freedom to move among us and in us, Lord. I pray that you would empty us of ourselves, teach us, Lord, to get rid of the junk that's in our hearts and our minds, and to allow room for you, Lord, to move. May your spirit be here among us, Lord. May it illumine the words to us, Lord. And I just pray for myself, God, that you would just guard my tongue and my thoughts and my mind. And Lord, help me to share the truth of your word in a clear manner. And Lord, as your word goes forth, may it go forth in power, I pray. And I ask this blessing for us all, Lord, here in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, backing up a little bit, uh, I want to talk about the context. We're looking specifically at this question about fasting, mostly in verses 18 through 22. But to get the, the, what's going on here, that's why we started back in 13. The context is the Pharisees are doing what's, you know, one of their favorite pastimes and, and picking on Jesus and anybody else who they don't think conforms to their ideas of piety. So they asked Jesus in the first few verses there why he would eat with tax collectors and sinners. And if you notice in that text up there, the term tax collectors and sinners is repeated three times. It's kind of emphasizing this audience that Jesus is spending time with. Uh, and they, they sort of spit this out. Why would you eat with people like that? And they're basically trying to suggest that Jesus must be an unrighteous person. Because only unrighteous people would hang out with unrighteous people. And so then Jesus responds to them very wisely. He heard it and he said, Those who are well have no need of the physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. So they failed to really put him in his place like they were hoping to do. They failed to prove that he was an unrighteous man. And so they attack him again. And this time, instead of attacking him about who he's eating with, they're attacking him over eating at all. It's not good enough that, you know, that he ate with the wrong people. You're eating it all. There's something wrong here, buddy. So they point to this. It's interesting. The first attack is about feasting. The second attack is about fasting. And so they come to Jesus now and they say in verse 18, uh, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they said to him, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? In other words, once again, well, we are the model of piety and holiness, and this is what we do. So if you think you're pious and holy and some great rabbi, why aren't you making your disciples do that which we do? And then Jesus responds in turn. He said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Now this is where it gets really interesting because Jesus is introducing for us not only 
uh, not only is he responding to their question, but he's giving us some context to what he's going to say afterwards. I'll explain that in a second. But I want you to notice first, in his reply, he refers to himself twice as the bridegroom. And this is a very significant point because throughout scripture, the picture of marriage is deeply important. It's a picture of the relationship that God has or wants to have with his people. I've got just four of the verses here on the screen, but there's actually a bunch more in both the Old Testament and the New Testament where Jehovah is presented. He presents himself as a bride, or sorry, as the bridegroom, and he presents the, the church or Israel as the bride. And of course, we know the great culmination of that in Revelation. There's the wedding feast of the Lamb, and of course, that's Christ. And then there is uh, the, the, the bride presented as she comes down from heaven, the new Jerusalem, the chosen people of God. It's this beautiful picture. And by the way, right after that section where it talks about rejoice for the wedding supper of the Lamb, then comes something else after that, which we'll get to at the end, which connects to what he says here. You see, I, I'll tell you one thing, maybe a sidebar, but a lot of people say, well, Jesus never actually claimed to be God. A lot of people throw that out. Well, no, he never stood up and said, hey, by the way, I am God. Right here in this text, though, he pretty much does. Because he's speaking to the Pharisees. They knew the Old Testament. They understood the bridegroom in that ambiguous sense is a reference to Jehovah. Go back and read that. I hope you write that down. Read Jeremiah, Ezekiel, read Hosea. He was making a claim to be Jehovah when he refers to himself as the bridegroom. But that also sets a context for the symbols that he's about to use next. And we'll come back to that. Um, the other thing going on here, see, in the Old Testament, the, the Pharisees have asked him about fasting. And it's a tradition that they carried on. Those traditions of the Pharisees, many of them went back to the days of Ezra. Okay? Ezra led this great revival. He was brokenhearted because the people were not following the law of the Lord. And so Ezra comes and he teaches them what that means. And he, he laments before the temple that the people had violated God's law. And then he dedicated his life to teaching them what it meant to follow. And there's actually a lot of Jewish traditions carried on even today that trace their origin back to that movement towards piety that Ezra taught the people. Now, in Ezra's day, there was nothing wrong with what he was doing. He was teaching them to do as God had commanded. But through the years, those things got corrupted, basically, to, to traditions. Okay? In the Old Testament, we find many examples of fasting uh, directly associated with mourning for sin. Not always, but many times, it is mourning over sin. And that's what Ezra did himself. He fasted when he saw the sin of the people. The Pharisees then had taken this through the years and, and turned it into this thing where to be a pious person, you had to do this. Okay? And so they fasted two, sometimes three days a week or more. And it was a sign of their remorse for sin. Which is a little bit funny because the entire Pharisaical life was about trying to not sin. Okay? Ask them if they're guilty of sin, and most of them would probably think, well, no, I'm really not. But they did this. It was kind of like a, like a just-in-case sort of a thing. You know, I, I don't think I've sinned because I've lived my life so well according to the law. But just in case I did, 
I'm going to go ahead and fast two or three days a week to mourn for the sins I might have done. Just in case. And that way God will accept me because he knows I'm really sorry. So it was a part of their system. It was a man-made tradition that had turned into the standard practice of anyone who was pious or holy. And the funny thing is they're talking to Jesus. And Jesus' primary mission in life was to come and fix the sin problem. And they're asking him, why don't you buy into the system we've created? See, they're talking to him and his response to them. Why do you expect them to fast when the bridegroom is here? It's a time for celebration because the solution for sin is now at hand. And they can't see it because they're so stuck in their man-made dogmatic traditions. They're foolish forms of religiosity. And so they miss the entire point of his coming. So Jesus tells them a parable. He tells them a parable. Now, the text in Luke identifies it as a parable. The other two just go into it. So I'm actually going to read both the Mark and the Luke versions of this. In Mark chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, the parable, he says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for if he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. And then if you flip over to Luke chapter 5, the parable is just slightly different, but I want to read it. Verses 36 and 38. He says here, uh, it says, he told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. For if he does, he will tear the new garment, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for if he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the, wine, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking the old wine, desires the new, for he says, the old is good. Now, this is an interesting parable. What Jesus is doing is, is stating two basic pieces of common sense. That's all it is. It's just common sense for, for their day and age. And their culture. When he first said this, probably the first thought people had was, duh, what's your point? And so honestly, I've read this many times myself and just kind of, you know, glazed over it, you know, ran through, oh, new wine, new wine, says, okay, that's really weird, and keep going. But, but for some reason, when I read this in Matthew recently, it struck me. And I began to study and I began to see some depth. But let me, before I get to the depth, let me just explain the, why is this common sense in their day. It's pretty simple stuff, but we don't deal with this much today. Um, most of us, when we tear our clothes, what do we do? Trip to Walmart, right? Well, let's be honest here. Most of us, it's, you know, use and throw it away. That's our culture. Use and throw it away. Uh, but back in their day, it didn't quite work like that, okay? They didn't have a Walmart. <gasps> Don't panic. They survived. They didn't have a Walmart to go to. Most of their clothes were handmade by somebody. Hand-woven fabric before the mechanical loom was invented, okay? 
Um, and so they wore, what was the, the primary clothing they wore was probably, let me take a guess, a country that grows a lot of little white fluffy balls of cotton. White fluffy balls with legs that go bad. Sheep, wool, very good, wool. It's a place where wool was most common in use for fabrics. You got me on that. I didn't think white fluffy balls, cotton, duh, okay. Let's think of animals. They wear wool. And, you know, we only wear wool for fancy stuff for the most part, right? We wear a lot of cotton. But wool shrinks, okay? If you, if you wash it, and especially if you dry it in the dryer, I don't think they dried it in the dryer back then. But somehow, as it wears, it, it, it shrinks a little bit, okay? Now, the average guy, who was, you know, your, your lower class person, the, the average citizen did not have a lot of extra clothes, okay? They maybe had one or two tunics, maybe three if they're lucky, and they had a cloak, the outer garment, okay? It's basically a gigantic shirt. When we were in the Middle East, we called them man dresses. And they're still wearing the same things, they just make them out of cotton now. Uh, so you got this gigantic man dress that you wear, and when you tear your, your tunic... You fix it. I know the young people are like, wow, you can fix that stuff? Yeah, you can actually fix clothing. Um, and they put, they put a patch on it. And they didn't do it for style. See, I know this is going over the head of the young generation because they wear, they actually buy the pants already torn. I don't get it. I really don't. And I'm thinking, hey, you need to get that fixed. And they're like, what do you mean? It is fixed. Anyway, Sorry. I'm just not hip. They wear the wool. They've only got one. They fix it. And everybody knew, because it was just common sense, you don't take a new fabric, new wool, and sew it onto an old garment that's already shrunk, because the new fabric is not shrunk yet. It's sewed on there nice and tight. And even little kids back then knew how to sew some. Sew it on there really good, and then when that wool shrinks, it just rips the fabric apart. Okay? In Luke, he says something very similar, slightly different. He says, you don't take a new garment and cut a piece off the new and try to stick it on the old. It's the same concept. It's silly. It doesn't work. And everybody knew you just don't do that. Then, of course, you got the wineskins. Wine was a big deal back then, right? Everybody drank wine. And new wine continues to ferment for some time. Now, I'm no connoisseur, okay? I'm really not. I have no idea what the difference between good wine and bad wine is. It's all rotting fruit, by the way. Uh, Some better than others, I don't know. Um, But new wine continues to ferment. And they would put wine into wineskins, not for storage. This is an important point. They did not store their wine in wineskins. It was to be drunk or drinking or whatever the verb is. You drink it from a wineskin, okay? So if you got new wine... And you're going to go on a journey, you put new wine into a new wineskin, and that's your drink pouch as you go. If you have old wine, you can put it into an old wineskin. But common sense back in the day was these bags, they're they're leather bags, okay, leather stretches, right? And so if you've got the new wine and it's still fermenting in the pouch, it will expand a bit and it can stretch that leather. But an old wineskin got a little bit brittle, it was already stretched, and it was potential to burst. So you put old wine in there. It's not fermenting anymore. And that way, if it, the new wine doesn't ferment and cause the skin to, to break. Okay? That makes sense. It's really common nitinoy details of life. And Jesus just throws out these two little uh, truisms and then goes back to his business. 
And we kind of, kind of leaves us scratching our heads sometimes. Well, what's, what's that all about? Are the Pharisees not smart enough to know what they were doing with their clothing? No. The fact is, uh, Luke identifies this as a parable, meaning there's a spiritual meaning to these symbols. Okay? And I said before that uh, Jesus called himself the bridegroom. That gives us some context, right? Context to understanding what he's saying here. So here's where it gets a little tricky. In scripture, there's a lot of things that are analogies, a lot of symbols that are used throughout the Bible. And the problem is sometimes one symbol can be used two or three different ways. You'll see that in a little bit with wine. Wine itself is used three different ways in scripture as a symbol. So how do you decipher which one's which? Well, you look at the context because there is a consistency throughout the scripture to how symbols are used. So what's really cool is Jesus says, no one can fast while the bridegroom is here. He's introducing context. And the context is he's using the language of weddings. The context of a wedding. Okay? That's important because you'll find that with wine and garments, despite all the different ways they're used in scripture, when wine and garments are used in the context of a wedding, they're always used to consistently mean the same thing. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So, we're going to start with the garments. Now, garments are fun. And we all spent lots of time primping ourselves this morning to get just the right garment. And I bet nobody stopped this morning to ask yourself a really important question. Why am I wearing clothes to to church today at all? Did anybody ask yourself that? No, of course not. We, We take it for granted. We're so used to wearing clothes. But you know, when God created the world, you know, the first man and the first woman, they weren't wearing any clothes. Big secret, I know. They weren't wearing any clothes. So where did clothes come from? Well, that's really interesting. Still trying to figure out how to use this clicker here. Okay. You see, clothes were not part of the original creation. They came when Adam and Eve sinned. And it's very fascinating that the first effect that Adam and Eve felt of their sin was nakedness. Genesis 3, 7, the eyes. This is immediately... They sinned. They ate that fruit. And then it says, the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. First thing off, they knew they were naked. And then they sewed for themselves fig leaves and made themselves loincloths. Hmm. That's really interesting. The first effect of sin was to recognize their nakedness. Now suddenly there was shame. And so they tried to hide that with fig leaves. And God comes down and he sees this. And he knows that these fig leaves are totally inadequate. And so after pronouncing some judgments upon them, he extends to them some mercy and some grace. And he gives them some proper clothes. Clothes made of skin. In 321, then Jehovah God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin. And he clothed them. Now here's the question. Where did God get the skin from? He got it from an animal. The very first animal sacrifice for sin. This points us from the very beginning, from the very first sin. It points us towards the principle taught throughout Scripture, clearly stated in in Hebrews 9.22, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That's a universal principle taught throughout Scripture and demonstrated right there at the beginning. God had to cover their sin for them, cover their nakedness and their shame 
with the sacrifice of an innocent animal. So garments are a covering on our body which is necessary due to sin. Garments are a covering necessary due to sin. And the fig leaf garments that they made represent man's attempt to cover our sin with our own works, which is totally a futile effort. Can, can you guys imagine for me how shoddy and how silly these, these outfits looked? I mean, you, you've seen leaves before. You sew leaves together. How silly. How inadequate. And yet, that's what man does, don't we? The fig leaf garments and all of their silliness reminds us of the impossibility of making up for our own sin by our own works. But God provided skin robes. And these skin robes that God made represent our sins being covered by God himself. Through the shedding of blood, and of course that lamb, or whatever it was that he killed, that first sacrifice was a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That he would come and shed his blood to be the final, ultimate, and true covering and payment for our sins. So that we can stand in God's presence, clean and righteous again. So garments throughout scripture are an important concept. But I said there's a context here, right? The context of a wedding. So what about wedding garments? What's so important about wedding garments? Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. I'm not going to read the whole parable, but it's the parable of the wedding feast. In a nutshell, Jesus tells the story of the master who uh, throws a wedding feast for his son. He invites all these people to come and nobody comes. So he sends his servants out and they, they compel people just off the street. They're grabbing all kinds of people. Saying, come on, we got a party planned. Let's go to the party. And it's a sign of salvation. The master represents God the Father. The son is Jesus. It's a picture of the wedding feast of the Lamb that we're told about in Revelation. And God gathers people from all nations. From the streets and the byways and the highways and the hedges. He gathers people from all nations to come to his wedding feast. But then at the very end of the parable, see, the parable ends very nicely at verse 10. It's just a perfect ending right there. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. And his theological point gets across, but Jesus throws in one more point in Matthew 22, verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. And then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I want you to get the significance there. Remember I said God cares about what you're wearing? You're going to get into heaven based on what you're wearing? Yeah, it's an analogy. But he says right there, the man is cast into outer darkness because he does not have a wedding garment. He is clothed in his own clothing. His own clothing, which represents his own works. He's tried to come into the wedding feast of the Lamb based on what he's done for himself. Instead of receiving a wedding garment. So what exactly is the wedding garment? That's where it gets cool. Isaiah chapter 61 Verse 10. 
I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, notice again the wedding context, the picture of the wedding being given there. And he talks about the wedding garment that he's wearing is a robe of righteousness and a garment of salvation. The wedding garment is salvation itself, which is the righteousness of Christ credited to us. So take this symbol then, and we apply it back to what Jesus says here. Now again, fasting, that's the big question here. Why aren't you, why aren't you making your disciples fast? Fasting is a part of the man-made religion of rituals, okay? Fasting is an attempt on the part of the Pharisees to dress themselves up for a wedding. And they expect anyone who wants to be pious to do the same thing. But Jesus tells them this, and his, his big point, basically, is this. I didn't come to fix your old religion. I didn't come to make sure all your holes in your religion were patched up and that you had your buttons sewn on straight. I didn't come to show you how to make a better fig leaf garment. I came to give you something entirely new and different that you can never get on your own, and that is a relationship with God. I didn't come to fix your religion. I came to give you a relationship with God accomplished by His works and applied by faith. And that message is still directly applicable to you and I today. Christian and non-Christian alike, by the way. Even I fall into the habit sometimes of trusting in the rituals of the Christian faith. I'll talk more about that later. But this message is directly applicable, especially for the man who has not trusted Christ as his Savior. You see, all people, all people, have a tendency to want to earn salvation. It's part of our natural bent. And see, at the core of every single man-made religion, every single man-made religion has at the heart of it the attempt to earn salvation by works. Every religion is a system by which we think we can make ourselves good enough for God to accept us. Now, our works may be great things, okay? Maybe going to church. Maybe giving to charity. Maybe serving the poor. Maybe prayer. It could be any number of noble things. But if those things are not a part of our relationship with Christ, then they are nothing but dead works. They are ultimately meaningless. And see, even as Christians, we're tempted to turn the outworking of faith into the essence of our faith. What do I mean by that? I'm saying that there are things that we ought to do because we are Christians. And yet sometimes we tend to look at ourselves and think we are Christians because we do those things. We've got it in the wrong order. And it's just part of the natural bent of man because we want to do something. We want to earn something from God. I want you to notice though, there in Mark, tw uh, Mark 2, verse 20. Notice that there is nothing actually wrong with the fasting. 
And I want you to get, I'm not preaching against going to church, okay? Don't quit going to church just because it's part of what you do as a Christian. I'm not preaching against those things. But the point is that they are not the essence. They are simply the product of what we already have. There's nothing wrong with fasting. In Mark 2.20, Jesus affirms the practice. Okay? He said that when the bridegroom is taken away from them, his disciples will fast. But they will be fasting because of their faith, because of their relationship with him, not fasting in order to have a relationship with him. That difference is so important. See, Jesus didn't come to fix what was lacking in your system of works. He came to do what you can never do yourself, which is clothe you in true righteousness. He came to make you acceptable to God. So at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the master doesn't point to you and say, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Look back there in the, the, the Luke version. Luke 5.36. In Luke 5.36, notice the way he phrases that. That they don't cut a piece from a new garment to put it on an old. I want you to understand something. You cannot tear apart true Christianity and use the pieces here and there to fix your life. You cannot tear apart real Christianity and say, well, I'll patch that over here and I'll patch that over here and then I'll have a great life and I'll be acceptable to God. Because guys, Christ is all or nothing. Salvation is all or nothing. You cannot take the pieces you like and continue on the same path with the same filthy garment and expect to get to heaven. If you have partially accepted Christ, you've completely rejected Christ. If you've only accepted the bits and pieces of Christianity, you have rejected salvation. I can't say that enough. Especially as I see young people. And I'm sorry to preach, but I, I, I see young people raised in churches all the time. And I love them to death and I'm so thankful for their upbringing in a Christian family. And yet so often it's evident that going to church and going to a Christian school and praying and doing Bible studies, whatever they do, is simply something that they do because they were taught to do it. And there's no true heart behind it. There's no desire for God. And it breaks my heart, guys, when I see kids who just have the religious garment on the outside and they don't truly have that robe of righteousness which has changed them to their very core. You can't take bits and pieces of Christianity and fit them into your life. You've got to completely reject that filthy garment and receive the robe of righteousness. All right. Put the garments down for just a minute. Take a breather. We're going to talk about wine for a second. Wine. Now, wine, again, it's used several different ways in Scripture. Used at least three different ways as a symbol. But in the context of weddings, wine always represents joy. Joy. Yes. Think about Jesus' first miracle. What did he do? Turn water into wine. Where was he at? At a wedding. Why would he do that? Because he was just really fond of wine? 
course not. He did it because wine was a widely understood, broadly accepted part of the wedding ritual as a sign of joy. See, when Christ turned the water into wine, it was a blessing for these newlyweds. It was a symbol of joy, and it was an affirmation of the beauty of the marriage relationship. Guys, God loves marriage. He loves weddings. That's why he identifies himself as a bridegroom, and the church in Israel is his bride. He loves it. He wants the feast to continue. It's joy in the wine. The wine skins, they represent two kinds of people. Now, the old skin represents what the Bible calls the old man or the natural man, the man of flesh, the man who is unredeemed, who has rejected salvation. He's trapped in the futility of the old religion of works. But what's interesting is that old man still has wine. Okay? There's still a joy. Now you say, why is that? That doesn't make sense. Think about this. I want you to understand this. There is a type of joy, a form of joy, which the non-Christian, the non-believer, the unregenerate man has in his work trying to, to earn salvation. Okay? There's a type of joy. It's called old wine here. And you see... This explains why people who don't have a relationship with Christ still enjoy doing things like coming to church. Yeah. People who don't know Christ still do religious things. And they find some satisfaction, some kind of happiness in doing the religious things. And I think that what they're getting out of that is the sense that they have done something for God and so God then deserve, or owes them some, they deserve something from God. They've done something for God by showing up to church and getting out of bed on a Sunday morning. And so they hope or they think they, that God deserves or they deserve something from God. I'll get that straight eventually here. There's a type of joy. I feel good about myself when I do these good things. And it feels great to think that God is obligated to do something for you, doesn't it? I mean, seriously, if we could just bottle him up like a genie and make him do whatever we want and he's obligated to us wouldn't that be fantastic it's an illusion but if you're believing that illusion does it not feel good that's old wine people that's that's a temporary joy now we think of old wine it's a good thing right again i'm not a connoisseur it's all rotten grapes to me but i know people who are really into this stuff and and you know, like this bottle over here is a 1942-something. It's worth a gazillion dollars because it tastes so good. And this wine, it's a $2 bottle of wine. Okay, because the, the one is older, right? I don't know if there's any wine connoisseurs, but somebody out there, I guess, probably knows this. The older the wine, the better it is, I guess? I don't know. But I said it's important earlier. Remember, the wineskins are not for storage. Wineskins are temporary. And the thing with the wineskin instead of a bottle... In the bottle, that wine can get old and become really good wine. In the wineskin, the old wine becomes bitter. It becomes bitter. And that's very interesting because the joy of the person who seeks to earn his salvation, who seeks to earn his way with God, is a joy that will turn bitter. It will turn bitter. It will turn bitter in life. Is your disappointed time and time again? But more than that, it will turn bitter 
on the day of the wedding feast of the Lamb. When you discover that all the efforts and the attempts you have made to please God have earned you nothing but to be bound hand and foot and cast into outer darkness, which is, of course, a term for hell. There's a joy in the old wine and the old wine skin. But Jesus says, the fresh wine, the new wine, is for fresh wine skins. And that fresh wine skin represents the new man, the man who was born of water and spirit, what we call simply born again, right? The fresh wine is the one who was born again. I have no idea where the slides have been. Uh, that's where we're supposed to be. No, we, I love technology. <laughs> Jesus basically says here, when he says new wine can only be put into wineskins, he's saying that the true joy of communion with God is found only in the new life, in being born again in the life of faith in Christ. New wine is not found. True joy cannot be found in the system of works. So, Jesus is basically telling the Pharisees in the short parable two things. He's telling them, he's telling us as well. Two big points. He didn't come to fix our system of works or improve our man-made religion. He came to make us and to offer to us a robe of righteousness. And he says the joy of his salvation is not for the unrepentant or natural man. Because true joy is only found in repenting of your sins, turning to Christ and being born again. Those are his big points of his parable. I want to draw those to a close by, by pointing out that there is in scripture another use of the symbols of garments and wine. And they're important because they, they give us a contrast between these symbols that are our symbols of joy and salvation. Okay? There's another use of the symbols of garments and wine. And the first one, well, one of the most significant ones, is found in Isaiah. Isaiah 63. I'd encourage you to turn your Bibles. I got it up there if you don't have your Bible, but I encourage you. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 63. And read this carefully. Isaiah 63, 1 through 4. Isaiah kind of talks and then Jehovah speaks back to him. Isaiah said, Who is this who comes from Edom? In crimsoned garments from Basra, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. And the Lord speaks and says, It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. And Isaiah says, Why is your apparel red? And why are your garments like him who, is, who treads in the winepress? And the Lord responds, I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. But I trod them down in my anger, and I trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained my apparels. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. 
The garments in the wine are also a picture of God's judgment against sin. And that right there is a prophecy that relates to one, it's one that is yet unfulfilled. In its fullest context, the prophecy of the day of the Lord, it finds its fulfillment finally in Revelation. I'd like you to turn your scripture to Revelation chapter 19. Right after the wedding feast of the Lamb, it says this. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe that is dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linens, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen? King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he comes to judge the earth after the wedding feast of the Lamb. When he has taken his righteous, his bride, and celebrated He judges the earth. And so I want to leave you with this thought this morning. On that glorious day, will you drink the wine of joy at the wedding feast of the Lamb? Or will you drink the wine of God's wrath? When the Lamb of God is revealed as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. To put it to you another way, will you have Christ today as your Savior? Or would you rather have him tomorrow as your judge and your conqueror? We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.